the best lives in some ways are unadorned lives, the lives that are not adorned by the trappings of wealth or posturing or status seeking, but are the simplicity of do you have people who love you and do you have people you love? Hey everyone, welcome back to On Purpose, the number one health podcast in the world. Thanks to each and every single one of you that come back every week to listen, learn, and grow. Now, today I'm super excited because I have been reading these authors' books since my teenage years, and I found them fascinating. They totally inspired me when it came to behavioral science, understanding the mind, how we think, how we make decisions, how we get driven and motivated and I've been a fan ever since. So this is a true fan moment for me. Our guest today is none other than Daniel Pink. He's the author of six books about business and human behavior. His books include the long time running New York Times bestseller, When, which we'll be dissecting today, A Whole New Mind, as well as the number one New York Times bestsellers, Drive, which was actually the first book that I read from him, and To Sell is Human. Dan's books have won multiple awards and have been translated into 40 languages and have sold more than 3 million copies. Now, Dan has been a contributing editor at Fast Company and Wired, as well as a business columnist for the Sunday Telegraph. His articles and essays have also appeared in the New York Times, Harvard Business Review, and other publications. And in 2019, London-based Thinkers 50 named him the sixth most influential management thinker in the world, and he lives in Washington, D.C. with his family. And today we're here to talk about his latest book, When, called The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing, which I know you're going to love. So, Dan, thank you for doing this. Jay, it's a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, you literally, you were like one of the first people I ever thought of interviewing before I even had a podcast. And I remember saying to, I believe, our mutual friend, uh, Dan Chabelle, who I, I believe you know well as well. Sure, of course. I remember okay. saying to him, I was like, I would love to interview Dan. And, and he was like, yeah, I can introduce you to him. I can introduce you to him. And then I didn't have a podcast then, so I didn't interview you. So we waited. But, uh, <laughs> uh, worth the, absolutely worth the wait. Yeah, well, thank you so much for doing this. I, I've genuinely enjoyed your books. What you've helped me understand about human incentives, drive, and now timing, which I think is the most fascinating. I recommended this book uh, last year as one of my top 10 books and oh, have been, uh, pushing it out as much as I can. So I'm excited to dive into it. But I want to actually start off with something that I saw on your Twitter profile, I think it was yesterday or a couple of days ago, where you recommended, huh. you actually recommended Trevor Noah's audiobook oh. Crime for a book to study with for high school students. And I was understanding why, why particularly that book? Yeah, no, it's interesting. I, um, um, I, there's a, there's a large presence, um, uh, on Twitter of, and other social media of, of educators. And, and those are educators among the few people who I actually enjoy interacting with on Twitter. Uh, and so there was a, a fellow who I think was a high school principal who was looking for recommendations for books for high school students to read. And I thought that, um, that Trevor Noah's book, um, including the audio edition, was just a great choice for high school students. I mean, I, I'm the father of a high school student. Uh, my, son has, my son has read that book. It's just a gripping story of this kid. And I think that what he is telling us gives us all kinds of insight into our world today. He, Trevor, was the son of a black mom and a white dad, German dad, uh, growing up. Uh, he was born in apartheid-era South Africa. And so simply for, for, for Americans, especially white Americans, hearing about that is just 
I mean, even though you know it, it's just kind of mind boggling. <laughs> um, and then, um, and then what happens after post apartheid, how he decides what he wants to do, what his relationships are with his mother and father. But I actually listened to the audio edition of this, of, of his book. And it is, Jay, I, I think the best audio book I've ever listened to. Oh, and, wow. and, the re- and the reason for that is that, is that Trevor Noah speaks multiple languages. Mm. Um, and, and so, um, and so he goes into some of these languages, but also his ability to do characters and accents is just extraordinary. It's just, it's a, it's a virtuosic performance, uh, and just a, a gripping read. I can't imagine a 17 year old not being 16 year old, not being mesmerized by that as I was, and I'm way older than 17. <laughs> I love that. No, it's a great recommendation. I think that's awesome. And it's always nice to hear authors and very successful authors recommending other authors and audiobooks. So. Uh, I think that's brilliant. Yeah. Now, now you've made it really, really clear. That's that's great. Tell us about, I, I want to start, you know, about with your fascination with human behavior and the mind and, and the way we think and why we do certain things. Like, where did that come from for you? Because, you know, like I said, you were the first person or one of the first people to introduce me into that whole school of thought. And, and I just think like when you're young and you're at college or you're at school, you don't really, you don't really get exposed to these kind of topics. So where was it for you? And, you know, how did that start for you? Uh, I guess I'm not totally sure. I think part of it comes from being a pretty quiet kid growing up. I, don't, I, won't, I won't say shy, but just kind of a quiet kid, more of an observer, uh, a reader, it's a kid who went to the library all the time. And, and so always feeling like I wasn't quite in the center of things, but was kind of on the periphery observing. And who was I observing? I was observing these crazy people. Uh, and so that I think was, I think that was part of it. I also was fortunate enough when I was in college to, I uh, studied a lot of economics, a uh, lot of psychology. And, uh, but I ended up, I actually majored in, in linguistics, which is a, which is a, um, which is another social science. So I was always keenly, keenly interested in it. I think if I had my, uh, if, if my, I can totally see in retrospect if my life uh, that I would have become a professor rather than, um, doing um, no. the, the, the noble hackery that I'm doing today. <laughs> no, that's awesome. I, I, it's interesting always how, how people got to where they got to. And, and I'm fascinated that you haven't fully dissected your journey and, and like broken it up into little pieces. And I quite like that. I think it's, uh, I think it's, it's very humble of you, actually. Well, I, I also think it's, uh, you, thank you for that. I'm not sure that it's humble as it is accurate. I think a lot of times these, these, there, there are different vantage points in, in looking at these journeys. And I, and I like the metaphor of a journey, the different vantage points in, in looking at these journeys. So if you're in it and you're, in your, you're, 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 you're navigating your way, uh, at least for me, there was much, much less intention than one would think. Mm. Uh, and much greater kind of half-assery, <laughs> um, <laughs> luck, uh, that, that kind of thing. I, I think that in, in some cases, just because it makes us more comfortable existentially, we look back on these things and say, oh, there was a clear narrative to that journey. Yeah. Um, and there might be. I think that that retrospective look is actually val- is, is, is valid too. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I know that you spent a lot of time in Japan, right? Or you spent yeah. some time in Japan. Yeah, I spent some time in Japan, sure, yeah. yeah. Well, what, what's, that, what's the culture like or what kind of influences have you taken from that culture oh, in your life? Yeah, it's a, a, a really, really interesting question. Um, Probably more profound than I realize. Um, I think that one of them is the virtue of simplicity. 
in Japanese design and in certain sorts forms of just Japanese culture, there is a premium on that simplicity. And I think in, in, in many cases, in many realms of particularly American and particularly kind of uh, elite, well-educated American circles, uh, there is this kind of performative complexity. I mean, forgive, uh, even that phrase performative complexity is an I, example I like of, it. well, no, it's total <laughs> BS because it's an example of performative complexity. Basically what it is, is that people want to feel smart and the way that they want to feel smart is by making things really complicated. And, yeah. and, 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 and to me, one of the things I absorb from spending time there is actually the, the keenest form of intelligence is to make things as simple as you possibly, simple and clear and elegant as you possibly can, whether you are writing a book, whether you're making a film, whether you're building a house, whether you're raising a family, anything like that, that there's a virtue in that kind of simplicity and clarity. So I think that's probably the thing that sunk in the most for me. That's so profound. I'm so glad you shared that, actually. I, I didn't know what answer you were going to give. And, and I, Neither did I. I. And, <laughs> and, and, I, and I love that because I've, I've always thought that for a while. Like, you know, I was, my, all my work is inspired by two statements. Uh, mm. One statement is, a uh, statement often attributed uh, to Martin Luther King, where he said that if you want a new idea, read an old book. And so I have this fascination with timeless wisdom and, and kind of right. truth yep. in the past. Yep. Yep. And, and then yep. the second one is from Einstein, and when he said that if you can't explain something simply, you don't understand it well enough. And, and so I've always been fascinated with simplification, and your work does that very, very effectively, apart from performative complexity, which I believe... <laughs> Um, I don't know if you just made that up right now, but it's a great term, I did. I, I did. I did. You can uh, and, have it because I don't want to ever say it again. <laughs> and sometimes I feel like I feel this pressure as, as, a, as a thinker or a sharer or a whatever you want to call us. You know, I, I have this pressure of like, oh, well, maybe I'm making things too easy to understand. And, and actually hearing you say that is so like refreshing for me because I'm like, no, I want people to be able to practice it and just get it in one, you know, so that's a beautiful part of culture. And what part of the culture did you feel that? Was it architecture? Was it language? Was it, you know, where was that in the culture? I, I, I didn't have any mastery of the language. That, that was hard for me to, that, that was hard for me. Although I think there is something, you know, even in the pictorial uh, aspect of the language where a single character a single image represents something that's actually that can actually something be fairly complex. So if you take out some a notion that is complex like um, luck, okay, yeah. there'll be a character for luck. Uh, now that's true, obviously in China. That's true, obviously in Chinese as well. Um, I just I just thought that when the uh, if if you look at uh, even Japanese aesthetics, it's 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 and even Japanese cuisine, it's unadorned. It you know like like really good Japanese cuisine is unadorned. It isn't French where there's like ladle and link sauces and all kinds of stuff on it. It isn't you know heavily garnished and displayed in this grandiose way. It is pure. It is simple. It is unadorned. The the essence speaks for itself. And there's a, there's um there's a there's a lot to be said for that. Even if you look at uh, like even Japanese cuisine where you go into a place and all they serve is ramen. Okay, so they're not trying to do everything, but they're, you're going to get the best bowl of ramen you've ever had because that's all they serve. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and so I, I think that that has been that way of thinking has probably had a bigger effect on me than I than I realize. In fact, in some ways, Jay, your question is making me understand that that had a that had a bigger effect because I do think that there that that sim simplicity is. Clarity and simplicity to me are, are such, those are things that I as a, as a, 
as a creator and as a consumer, a prize very, very deeply. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're a phenomenal public speaker as well. And if anyone's never seen Dan on stage, right. you just go on YouTube and just watch him on stage, whether it's TED or, or other events. But how, have you ever reset simplicity or clarity out of interest? Like, are they themes that you see yourself writing about? Or do you ever, uh, have you ever been down a rabbit hole on one of those and, and discovered anything fascinating about simplicity or clarity? Because I think you're spot on that. Really, those are the two things we're always seeking out, right? Whether yeah. it's decision-making or, or whether it's in how we feel about ourselves or a relationship we have in our lives. I, I'm intrigued because I, I've definitely studied those from a meditation, mindfulness right, right, standpoint. Right. But I'm intrigued to hear about if you found anything scientifically that's, that fascinates you. Yeah, that's another really interesting question. I, I don't think I've ever intentionally... Uh, gone gone after that but there is there is a, a decent amount of there's a decent amount of of research showing aspects of this so for instance um so so for i i'll give you i'll give you something profound and something mundane okay yeah. so so on the on the on the mundane is um it's a concept it's a concept uh, in linguistics uh which is which is known as processing fluency uh, processing fluency and all processing fluency means is that the message, the words, the, the communication you're making goes down easily. All right. So, so it's, it, it goes down easily. Now that's a virtue in and of itself. Uh, but one of the things that we know from, from linguistics and, and some, from some social psychology is that processing fluency enhances believability not only understanding, but believability. And there's a dark side of this, of course. Um, and so what you see is that things that enhance processing fluency are effective in getting your message across. An example would be repetition, okay? We, we know that right, like repetition is effective. Repetition increases people's understanding. It increases their believability. Now there's a downside, there's a downside to that. Even things like rhyming, there's some brilliant research showing that 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 uh, messages that rhyme are not only considered more understandable but actually more believable. Alliteration, lists, and things like that. So, um, so we we do know something from science that that clarity and simplicity are obviously extraordinarily are, are extraordinarily effective. That's the mundane. Rhymes increase processing fluency. Okay. The, the, I think the more profound thing is that when you look at, say, things like uh, your listeners, your, some of your listeners are probably familiar with the famous Grant study out of Harvard, where uh, they followed um, uh, a group of men. It was at the time it was all men. Um, I think it was all white men. In uh, graduated from Harvard in the nineteen forty something like that, and they followed. Follow, I might be a little bit off in the years. They, sure. they, they, um, and they followed them through the course of their lives, um, uh, you know, checking, you know, a massive longitudinal study. They also did it with, um, they later did a group of, of working class men, all men from, from, from Boston. And um, one of the things that you see from the grant study is that, you know, like what makes somebody satisfied? What makes somebody happy with their life? And it turned out that it's completely unadorned. It's, Basically, do you have somebody you love and do you have people who love you? Period. Full stop. That's it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it, and that, it, it, you know, so, so the, the adornment that we were talking about in Japanese cuisine, that lack of adornment in Japanese cuisine 
is that our, our, the best lives in some ways are unadorned lives, that lives that are not adorned by the trappings of wealth or performative complexity or um, posturing or status seeking, but are the simplicity of do you have people who love you and do you have people you love? Yeah, that, that, that is truly one of the hardest things to understand right now as well, because you know, I, I was literally speaking to on another podcast, I was interviewing Peter Diamandis recently, and you know, he's sure. obsessed with the future, and we're talking yeah. about how you know, he thinks the world's improving, and the future's changing, and, and yeah. like, we, could, we could live on another planet, and we could you know, do all this kind of stuff. And, and it's, you know, at the same time, I remember a couple of years ago, I got to visit one of the Blue Zones in Sardinia, I don't know if you've come across blue zones, so I'm sure you no, have. No, I, I know, I know. I've actually ordered. I've actually there's a there's a there's a wine from that from Sardinia, a red oh, no. wine. The, the grape. I'm spacing out on what the what the what the what the varietal is, but there's a. Uh, I've actually gone out and looked and, and ordered wine from Sardinia because um, for that very reason. Oh, that's incredible. Okay, what a small world. So I don't drink, so I have no idea what that wine is. Others help you out, but. Uh, but yeah, so when I went there and I was, I was, you know, I lived with some of the people in the town and the village and I was looking at their lifestyles and I also interviewed Dan Butner who talks about the Blue Zone. Sure. And, and, you know, it's, you look at that simplicity and you look at yeah. that, you know, that stability of like growing up in a village, farming the land, natural exercise, not needing to do any HIIT workouts or any, any weights exercises. It, it, is, it is really, really special to see that. And I, and I like trying to entertain the paradox of, what parts of our lives are better simpler and what parts of our lives are better with some, and maybe complexity is the wrong word. Yeah. Maybe complexity is not even the opposite of simplicity. Maybe there's another great point. That's a great point. Element. Yeah. Maybe there's another element to like, not the opposite of simplicity, but a complementary, paradoxical version of simplicity that, because I find in, in, in and of myself, and I'd love to hear what you think, like, I, what I get fascinated about and excited about is the, the correlation between simplicity and then strategy, right? Mm. Like, or like simplicity and then like ambition or drive or focus. And, and I find like often today people, you know, people may connect simplicity with laziness or lack of focus or, you know, that, but we are speaking at a much more deeper essential level of clarity. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Um, it, it, it's interesting. There is a, um, it's, a it's an interesting, it, it's, it, it's in some ways a linguistic question, no, no joke, uh, about like what's the right word to describe what you and I are talking about? Because I feel like you and I are talking about something, well, at least what I think is, is important and, and quite interesting, but um, our vocabulary, the, or at least in English, might be impoverished and doesn't have the quite the, the, right, the right, right term for that. Uh, I think you used a really uh, important word there, essential. Um, you know, I think it's, it's, it's partly about what's essential. Um, um, it's partly about what, you know, what is, what is, what is fundamental. And I, and I do think that this idea that, that we know that simplicity and ambition can be easily twinned. No, mm -hmm. no question about it. I mean, you, you mentioned that one of your guiding quotations was from, was from, uh, for, was from Einstein, who was talking about simplicity and he ended up, I mean, among his, uh, among his breakthroughs were, were something that is so profoundly complex that most of us don't understand it beyond the equation we memorized in seventh grade. Talking of essentials, I, I do want to talk about, because I think this book is so essentially driven. So for everyone who hasn't read it, and I have recommended it before, we have, have this book, When, that I want to talk about. I think 
time is one of those things, you know, how we use time, spend time, create time, what we make time for, like time is one of those things that of course is, and the way we use it, an essential, essential, essential part of all of our lives. And I think when we're talking about simplicity or clarity, I think one of the biggest things we lack simplicity and clarity on is time. Uh, and, and for me, I've definitely noticed how over, over life, especially when your book came out, I've, I've tried to remove people from having to live their life based on a timeline mm. uh, or an expectation. And, and I realized that because my life went in a completely different direction whereby I became a monk at 22 and didn't have my first job until 26. Uh, and today lead one of the most meaningful, fulfilling lives in the world, thanks to how, all my experiences. And so it's just, it's fascinating. There were times in my life where I felt like I was behind people that I should be in line with. There are yeah. times in my life where I felt like I was ahead of people. There are times when I felt like I was trying to figure it out. And I think a lot of people usually feel like they're behind, ahead, or equal to and that's kind of how we make sense of stuff. And that's why when this book came out, which I know was like maybe what, a year ago, year and a half ago, maybe even a couple of years ago now, it's to me, that was, I was fascinated that you were able to pinpoint, you know, and go so deeply into time, which I always thought was so much more fluid. And so I guess the first question I want to ask you, and, and, and please take this wherever you like, like don't feel uh, constricted at all, because I like what we're kind of co-creating right now, is, is just, you know, why... What fascinates you about time the most that you were so deeply drawn to actually write a whole book about timing? Yeah, uh, so so that is actually, um, that, I'm going to put the answer to that in more of the mundane category. Um, the reason for it, the impetus for it was just frustration um, more than anything else. It wasn't any kind of deep conceptual fascination. So, so here we are. Uh, you know, I'm talking to you from this is this is my office here in Washington D.C. It's the uh, refurbished one-car garage behind my house. I live there, like right there. Um, and so, you know, I I would come to my office and and do stuff, do work. Um, and at a certain point, I realized I would have a I have a to-do list, uh, and maybe I would have appointments on the calendar, but I wasn't intentional at all about when I was doing stuff. Uh, I like 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 I, I would write when I felt like writing. Uh, I would make phone calls when I felt like making phone calls. I would do interviews when I felt like doing interviews, uh, you know, um, and I wasn't intentional about it. And, and that, and I said, that's, that's crazy. That's, that's crazy. Like I, I, I'm actually a fairly kind of rational. I like to think I am at least a fairly rational evidence-based guy. And, and I'm making these decisions about when to do things. I'm not even making decisions. I'm just kind of stumbling my way into it. And so I said, well, there's got to be some guidance out there on, on like when we should do things. And I found to my surprise that there wasn't. Uh, and that got me really curious. I said, well, I, I wonder if anybody's ever researched this. So I started looking around for research and it, it turned out there was a huge amount of research on this question, but it was splattered all over the place. Uh, it was in literally two dozen different domains. So it wasn't like you say, oh, there's a sociologist who studies timing. Well, there might be, there is, there are. But there are also biologists who do that. There are economists who've studied that. There are microbiologists who have done studied epidemiologists. There's a whole field called chronobiology. And so what you had was you had uh, literally two dozen different fields asking very similar, in some cases, identical questions. And what I said is like, hmm, maybe I, you know it was painful, but if I go wide enough and deep enough into this research, I can begin to piece together 
the evidence-based ways to make better, smarter decisions about when to do things, when to do things in a given day. But also to your other point, Jay, um, uh, when we think about our lives, our, our lives are episodic. Episodes have beginnings, episodes have middles, and episodes have ends. The whole idea of the journey metaphor you introduced earlier is like journeys have beginnings, they have middles, and they have ends. Uh, and it turns out that there is some fascinating research on how our cognitive abilities change over the course of a day, and then more episodically, how beginnings affect us, how midpoints affect us, how endings affect us. There's research on how groups coordinate in time. There's research on um, how the way we think about time affects our behavior. There's research, again, all roads lead back to linguistics. There's research based on, uh, on uh, the uh, uh, some, some interesting research showing that the way that languages configure their verb tenses, it can predict people's savings behavior, as crazy as that sounds. Um, and so, um, so it ends up being something that is, going back to another one of your, another one of your words, it ends up being essential. It ends up being fundamental uh, because uh, we are temporal creatures. That is, we have... We talk about colloquially about biological clocks, uh, about a biological clock. But but essentially, what we have, we know from from biology, is that especially chronobiology, is that we essentially have clocks in, in every cell in our body. I mean, we are walking timepieces. And again, depending on your notion of time, sort of philosophically, existentially, we are in some ways moving through time. It, at the very least, our conversation began in the past. Um, that right it's going to end in the future, right? The people who are going to listen to the recorded version of this are listening to something that happened in the past, but they had, but those people haven't done anything yet because that's in the future. And, and so we're sort of swimming in this essential element of our lives. And so what I was just trying to do is just make it understandable. I'd say my assumption is that the most common relationship, and I believe everyone has a relationship with money. We have a relationship with time. We have a relationship with sure. uh, anything, knowledge, wisdom, etc. And so our relationship with time for most people is, I always feel like I don't have enough, right? That is a very clear relationship that we all have with time where it's like, I don't have enough time. Uh, I can't make enough time. I can't find time. Like we say all these words, which are all about making, finding, creating, having. What does that do? What is that mindset toward time? How does that actually affect our behavior? Our, our relationship with time, we can think of it as an ally. We can think of it as an enemy in some ways. That's over. That's oversimplifying in that case. But I think if what, what we're trying to, and one way to make time your ally rather than your enemy is to recognize the effect, often invisible, that it has on your life. Um, so if you look, so, so I'll, give, I'll give you an example of, uh, uh, what we know from, let's just take the unit of a day, what we know very clearly from a whole array of research is that our brain power does not remain constant over the course of a day. Our brain power changes over the course of a day. Uh, so doing something at 9 a.m. is not the same as doing something at 3 p.m., period, full stop. Now, there's some complexity underneath that. But the main idea is that our brain power doesn't remain constant over the course of a day. The best time to do something depends on what it is you're actually doing. So once you understand those kinds of hidden invisible rules, you can begin to make time your ally rather than your enemy and end up mitigating some of those feelings that, you never, that one never has enough time. In many cases, people who don't feel like they have enough time, sometimes, not always, sometimes it's not a, it's not a, a, a sufficiency of time issue, it's a sufficiency of priority issue. 
what they, they actually don't have any clarity about their purpose or their priorities. And so they're, the other thing that we know is that when time becomes extremely salient in our lives, we underperform. Uh, and I'll give you, uh, in certain circumstances, or, or we're unhappy in certain circumstances. So uh, a, a great example of that is in professional services, but, but particularly in the practice of law, is the billable hour. Um, what we know, so if you are a, a lawyer practicing in a, in a law firm, not working for the government or doing that or, or a nonprofit or something, uh, you bill yourself out by the hour. And so what you do is that you have you know, a way to, well, I'm, I'm going analog here, but you, you have on your computer or, or you know, scribbled down uh, an account of what you're doing literally in some cases in six minute increments. Uh, and what we know from research there is that that makes people that is incredibly thwarting to people's sense of autonomy. Um, and so um, so there are all kinds of things in our relationship with time that if we reconfigure it, we can feel a little bit better, do a little bit more and better. Is productivity even the goal of time? Because I feel like today, one of the biggest challenges that I get asked at least, and, and maybe your children experience this, or maybe what I see outside in the world of social media is, a lot of people today spend a lot of time overthinking and procrastinating, and that's seen as a negative thing. And people are often like scared yeah. of overthinking, scared of procrastinating, or they judge themselves and then they start getting into this kind of like, you know, a vicious circle and cycle of feeling like, oh, like I'm, I'm wasting a lot of time here. Tell me about what you found or even your thoughts on, on productivity as a goal of time versus the, the effective use, if possible, of procrastination and overthinking. Uh, procrastination and productivity. Okay, let's talk about what productivity is. I'm going to be literal this year. Productivity is the amount of units you produce over a given amount of time. Yep. So it is inherently time-based because time is in the denominator of productivity. Okay. So, so again, I'm not sure that productivity is necessarily the best measure. I say that as a writer. Okay. So I could be like, like I could be a product, like suppose I wrote more words per hour today versus yesterday. I would literally be more productive, but am I, am I a better writer? I, I don't know. It's probably, it doesn't matter. Like what are the words? Right. Um, and so and so in some ways, productivity is the notion of productivity in that very literal sense is an artifact of our being an economy where we were producing identical mass produced goods. And so efficiency was the was the highest value because everything was the same. And so what you wanted to do was in a given denominator, make the numerator larger. Okay, that's how you increase. That's that's a way to increase productivity, or keep the numerator the same and shrink the amount of time in the denominator. So, um, so that's what that's what that's what productivity is. I think a way to, um, you know, a looser way to measure things is is quality and and imp- quality contribution, impact, those sorts of things. Uh, mm-hmm. And certainly for certain kinds of professions, like like being a writer, writing more words is no measure of my contribution to the world. Yeah, so if, if anyone's listening or watching right now and it's like, Dan, I'm, I just feel like I procrastinate a lot, I overthink a lot, yeah. and, and I waste time, what would be your response to that? Okay, so, let's, okay, so, so, that's, the product, so that's the productivity thing. Now let's, go, let's, talk about, let's, not, let's talk about procrastination because we know a lot about procrastination, okay? It, okay, procrastination is not always bad, okay? Sometimes you're procrastinating for a reason because you haven't worked it out 
because you're still incubating an idea. Okay. So it's not inherently bad. It's not like all procrastination is bad. The second big idea here is that procrastination is basically in general, the downside, the darn, the down negative procrastination is just an emotion regulation problem. Right. It has nothing to do with time. It means that you are unwilling to confront something and therefore are not something is so disturbing to you that you would rather actually sabotage yourself than confront it. That in some ways you're making a quasi rational decision that the pain of confronting, man, can I really write this is greater than actually not writing it in the first place. Um, and so, so we know this from a lot of research. Procrastination is an emotion regulation issue. And so what you have to think about is what is the emotion that you're avoiding? And is there a small step? Is there a way in some ways to trick yourself into either confronting it directly or to do something to just get yourself going and that, in, that, that the action ends up confronting the, the emotion? But a lot of times, but again, I just in certain circumstances, it's hard to say, the fact that you're not ready to start is a signal that it might be a very, very positive signal. It could mean that, hey, it's, I'm still incubating this. I think as soon as you start labeling and going, oh, my procrastination's bad and this is not yeah. a good place to be in, you're right. You just, every, all of that is just avoiding the actual emotion, which is a signal or a sign or an alert that's kind of trying to get your attention. And, and, and you just keep putting it away. And I think what that leads to, and this is something which I found fascinating in the book, it's like starting things. Like I feel like, you know, knowing when to start a business or knowing when to start a project is like the hardest thing in the world. And, you know, I'm sure you get asked this a million times, but like, tell us about the research behind starting something and, and what you found was most critical there. There's very rarely prospectively a perfect time to start something, but there are ways to give ourselves a little bit of a different psychological, a, a little bit of a psychological edge. Uh, and this is the work of Katie Milkman, Jason Reese, and Heng Chen Dai. Um, they did it at Penn, uh, University of Pennsylvania. And uh, they had this idea of, of um, what they call the fresh, it's called the fresh start effect. And a way to understand the fresh start effect is like this, that certain dates, certain days, certain dates are what social psychologists call temporal landmarks, temporal landmarks. That is, they, are, they stand out in time the way a physical landmark stands out in space. So again, back to the journey metaphor. You're navigating your way. You're trying to find your way. Oh, there's a landmark. I know where I am. Oh, there's that building. I have a sense of where I am. Temporal landmarks are navigational tools in some ways. But certain temporal landmarks have a peculiar psychological effect. What they do is essentially they, they operate as kind of a restart. What they say is that on certain days that are fresh start days, you essentially relegate your previous bad self to the past and open up a fresh ledger on your new self, all right? And so there's certain days that actually are more, you're more likely to start something and you're more likely to succeed while starting it. So what does this mean? Let's, let's be concrete here. If you want to start something, you're probably better off doing it on a Monday rather than on a Thursday. You're probably better doing it on the day after your birthday rather than three days before your birthday. You're probably better doing it on, on the, uh, like, uh, the, the first day of summer rather than three days before the first day of summer. Uh, let's say you're, uh, if, it, if one is a religiously observant, you know, uh, you know, the day after, uh, or the day of a religious holiday rather than four days before that religious holiday. Uh, and so you can, in some ways use, get, have that sense of where you are temporally and pick the right date to start something. Yeah. I, I can so relate to that. And my, my problem is 
I'll try to start something on a Monday. I'll fail on Tuesday. And then I wait till the next Monday <laughs> to start. Okay. And, well, and, uh, okay. So, so that's, a, that's, a, that's a mixed bag. Yeah. That's a mixed bag. It depends on, it depends on, on how deep the failure was on, uh, it depends sure. on how deep the failure was on Tuesday. Now there's another strategy for all of this. Yeah, please. Is which which on all of this? I mean, it's it's reasonably well known, and in some ways, it, it's it's interesting, Jay, because I think it's analogous to our conversation about simplicity and the opposite of simplicity, or simplicity and complexity. Uh, in that, I do think that in many cases we have been um, seduced into the idea of moonshots and big, hairy, audacious goals. Mm-hmm. I think that they're important. But I think that they're oversold in a way. And what's undersold, just think about it, just think about it as a pricing issue. Okay. So the so so the big hairy audacious goals, moonshots, I think they're overvalued. And I think what's undervalued is small wins. Uh, and once again, there's a lot of there's a lot of evidence of that, starting from Carl Weick uh, 30 years ago. Small wins are enormously important because what small wins do is that they small wins can overcome that procrastination problem. Small wins can then lead to other small wins and other small wins that cascade into something, into something bigger. So a strategy for overcoming procrastination, a strategy for many things, is to go, is to go for small wins. Let me give you an example of that. So, so uh, the one strategy that, I, um, that I've heard of, I, I mean, I just I call it this. It's not originally for me. It's just sort of in, you know, out there. I call it J5M, J5M, not J-A-Y, that, and that stands for just five more. Okay. And so if you don't feel like doing something, you say, okay, you know what I'm going to do? Oh man. Okay. So I'm, so I'm doing some research right now. Okay. I got these papers. Some of them are incredibly boring. Okay. You know what? I can't stand it. I, I want to quit. You know what? I'll just read five more pages, just five more pages. I'll read that. Okay. Yeah. Oh my God. I got a boatload of email here. Oh, I can't deal with it. I just want to go inside and have a drink. You know what? I'm going to just do five, five more, five more emails and we'll do that. Uh, you know what? I'm tired of writing. Okay, just five more sentences. That's it. And that, you know, that can get us going, give you a small yeah. win. And what happens a lot of times is that just five more becomes just 10 more, just 20 more, something like uh, something like that. Um, yeah, I really like that one. That's that's an awesome strategy. I think that's a great. Yeah, it's very simple. I use it all the time. I, I'm not joking around. I use it today. I use it today yeah. when I looked at my email file and I was like, oh, God. I've already answered enough email. To, I'm like, okay, just five more. And you know what I did? I just, I did that and I got it done. And I probably ended up answering eight or something like that. <laughs> Another one, a very well-known technique. I use it. I have no shame in using it. You're probably familiar with it. Your listeners are probably familiar with it is the, is the Pomodoro technique, um, which is, which is, you know, Pomodoro is Italian for tomato. Uh, and so, um, you know, you set a, a timer. I, I have one on my computer. Uh, that I use in, on very dark days. I set a timer for whatever. Uh, I do it for 25 minutes. And like, I, I just can't bear this. Okay, I, I can't research this anymore. I can't read this anymore. I, I'm sick of writing. Okay, here's what we're going to do. It's 25, 25 minute. I'm not going to do anything else. I'm just going to do it for that 25 minutes. And and that can, um, yeah. and, and that can, and I, and I think, let me, let me extract from this as always a large theoretical lesson. And it's this, all right? That a lot of times, in our understanding of what makes human beings tick, we think that belief precedes action, that you have to convince yourself and then that is the impetus to act. And in many cases, more cases than we realize, the arrow runs in the other direction, Mm -hmm. that getting yourself to act 
can actually trigger the belief. Yes. And that's a very, very important, that's a very, very important lesson. That, that's so true. And that's really, it's, it's kind of like when we're like, I can't make my mind up, right? Like even that saying is exactly in that belief where you're just spending so much time trying to make your mind up and decide something. And, and the, what I love about what you just said is, is around that whole, the small wins element of just, I always feel like when you can get into a good rhythm and pattern of keeping promises to yourself and keeping mm. small commitments to yourself, you start to trust yourself. And when you start to trust yourself, you can then trust yourself with bigger tasks. The problem is, like you said, is that we go for these moonshot goals and naturally we fail at them. And Great therefore point. we don't trust ourselves. And, and I feel like self-trust is like the big issue when it comes with time is that you're like, well, do I even trust myself with this much time? Do I even trust myself to complete that? Uh, and you're right about the small wins, whether it's making your bed or just five more or, you know, all of these principles that you're laying out, like that just builds trust with yourself. I'll give you something else uh, that, that builds trust with yourself that, that's related to this concept, which is, uh, again, is research-based. It's built on, uh, I've, I've, I've written about this. I wrote about it in that book. Um, I've talked about it before, is um, the work of Teresa Mobile at Harvard Business School. And she found that the single biggest day-to-day -day motivator on the job is making progress and meaningful work. Okay, so the days we're making progress, the days we're motivated, we come back the next day feeling motivated. Uh, but one of the challenges is that is that we never have a good, we often don't have a good sense of how much progress we're making. Um, and so one of the so one of the things that I've done for this is now for like eight or nine years now, is um, at the end of every day I have a progress what you know call it a progress ritual. And all I do is I just basically say. What I what what'd you get done today? And I just list what I got done today, and I keep a record of that. Uh, and I have to say, I almost never look at the list, but it's the act of doing. I mean, seriously, I almost never look at the list, but it's the act of doing it. So I sit, so I just take a moment. It's a it's a it's a it's a it's a ritual, all right. And you know, I don't have to tell you, former monk, the importance of rituals in 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 human understanding. Right. So it's a it's a ritual. It's a punctuation mark at the end of the day. What did you get done today, Dan? OK, this is what I got done. Ba -da -ba -da -ba -da -ba -ba. What, what, I love that. How do you do that for other people? So if you're leading teams, if you've got a small team, a big team, a company, how do you kind of help people realize the progress they're making? Because I find, yeah, there's something you can do it for yourself. But yeah, how do you do it for others? I mean, you could do you could do a ver you could do a version of what I'm talking about for your for your team. I mean, what I would want to do is is I would want to get I would want to build that habit in others rather yeah. than have them rely on me for that. I would want to build that habit in others. So what you could do is you could have you could ask your team to 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 to, to send you that at the beginning, not as a way to monitor them, but as a way to um, build the as habit. a way to, as just as a, as a, as a, as, a, as just as a way to build that habit and then eventually have them continue the habit without sending it to you. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to try, I'm actually going to try that out. I'm, I'm a hundred percent going to try that out. What'd you get done today? Just write down the things you get done. I mean, I mean, you, it's, it's a very simple concept. We always, we often have a to-do list at the beginning of the day, like have a done list at the end of the day. And it's almost like gamifying your mind, right? Because you know that if you got three things done yesterday, you might want to get four done today. And so you push a bit further. Right. I think a lot of times also when we're scrambling around, we, we don't have a sense of what we've, what we've accomplished. And oh. so sometimes it can be, and sometimes it can be, um, uh, it can be affirming. So I, I know that many days where I feel like I haven't gotten anything done during the course of a day, I stop and I do my little progress ritual. Again, we're talking like Jake, 30 seconds, 60 yeah, seconds. Yeah, for sure. Um, not anything elaborate. Um, I'm like, oh, 
Oh, okay. I actually got more done than the day. And then on the days where I didn't get much done, you're like, oh, come on, man. You got to you gotta do a little bit better than this. Come back yeah, tomorrow. Yeah. You're coaching yourself. You're coaching yourself. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. You're, you're, in many ways, you are. What you're doing is you're just giving yourself, you know, you're coaching. If you think about it like a, like a, like a sport, it's like, like, a, like in, 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 uh, in track and field or in swimming or something like that. Your coach is there with a stopwatch saying, here was your time today. Okay. Uh, or, you know, here's how much you lifted today. Um, you have a sense of, you know, are you making progress or you're not making progress? Yeah, one, I, I love that. One thing I want my audience, everyone who's listening right now or watching, I want you to be aware of is that literally Dan in this book breaks down everything from like productivity. I've, I've done some of the tests with you guys before and I've shared the book when we talked about, um, you know, all, all of the different productivity times for different types of people based on what time you sleep and what time you wake yeah, up. Yeah. Done the, the naps breaks. I'm not going to ask Dan all those questions because they're in the book and that's why I recommend the book. I, I want to ask Dan stuff that isn't in the book or is extending the book. And, and part, I think one of the biggest questions I do get asked that, that I do want to talk about is relationships. Because I think dating and getting married and knowing when to either pop the question or when you should expect the question, like these are like, these are like some of the biggest challenges in, in the world for on a personal individual level for people. And so... Tell, tell me about some of the work that you found when it came to not just like when's the best time to get married, but it's almost like when did people, when did, or what did you find when people said they knew or they felt they'd found the right person? Yeah, that one is, that one is more inscrutable, I have to say. Um, uh, I wrote about that only very, very tentatively yeah. because I wasn't sure about the, the research and that. I mean, it, you know, what, what it says is that, um, in general, in America, <laughs> marriages are more likely to last if people get married after age 25 and before age, I think, 34, somewhere around there. Uh, but again, that doesn't mean if you get married at age 35, you're going to get a divorce. You get married <laughs> at 28. You're, I mean, it's just like there's a slight, there's a slight effect there. Uh, there are some interesting effects on um, um, uh, education. Uh, so that uh, uh, to, to one, one big effect is, is that... Um, uh, especially in America today, uh, people with more formal education are more likely to get married and stay married. Uh, people with less formal education are less likely to get married and less likely to stay married if they are. Uh, and there's also seems to be an effect, whatever your level of education, on getting married after you complete your education rather than before. But again, I don't think you take those large population insights to make a decision about whether you're going to spend the rest of your life with someone you love. I can recommend a book that is, oh, yeah. um, uh, well, one of the leading scholars of, of, of marriage, um, really the social psychology of marriage is, is at Northwestern. His name is Eli Finkel. Uh, he wrote a very good book called The All or Nothing Marriage about how marriage has, about how marriage has changed uh, so, so a lot of what we know about healthy marriages and also how marriage has changed in America over the last uh, 200 years. It's a, it's a really, really, I, it's a very, very interesting book. All or Nothing Marriage. Yeah, the All or Nothing Marriage by Eli Eli Finkel, which uh, and, and, you know, there's a lot of really good research, a lot of good real, a lot of good research uh, in there, and there, there there are some relationship advice in there too. Um, you know, among the most important things are, um, you know, what do you attribute to someone's inherent personality, and what do you attribute to circumstance? So if your spouse, so if your spouse snaps at you, say, uh, do you say, oh my god, my spouse is the biggest jerk there ever was, or do you say, oh my spouse is having a bad day? And people yeah. who make the attribution that it's circumstantial, not surprisingly, end up better off than people who say, you know, attribute the behavior to per someone's inner jerkiness. Right. Yeah. No, it, it would be fascinating also to look at things like, 
amount of time couples spend together, but amount of time couples spend arguing on, on useful arguments, maybe too. Yeah. So, yeah. There's I'll other, there's other, there's other research out there. Right? There's a guy I, I'm spacing out on this. There's a guy named Gottman, I think. Yeah. John Gottman. Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. 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 He's, he's done some research on, on, on marriage and you know, one of the not, this is not surprising. One of the biggest um, things that you see is I, I, if I'm not, if I'm characterizing it right, is, is not only not arguing per se, but how people argue. Yes. Um, and, um, and so some of it has to do with the attribution. The other thing, one of the biggest signals, I think, in Gottman's research is uh, when people express contempt for their partner. Not surprisingly, that's a marker of things gone awry. Yeah, yeah, you're right. He's, he talks about learning how to fight uh, yeah. is the number one skill needed in a relationship, not knowing how to plan date night or how to, uh, you know, just how to communicate, but how to specifically fight. And uh, yeah, really useful. Tell, I, I, one thing I want to definitely dive into today is around this, and you, and you talk about it in the book, is about, you know, when's the right time to end something? Because I think we're always fascinated about it, and we talked about that, like when do you know when you should start something and when's the perfect time to start? Yeah. I think one of the things we're not very aware of when it comes to business work leases, whatever it may be, is ending. What, what have you learned? And, and not just in, in the book, but what have you learned from just your own life and experience and just like when you found is the right time to end something? That's a harder call to make. One of the things that I do know for sure, though, is that endings are much more important than I realized before I did this, this research, that endings have a profound effect on our behavior. Uh, endings have a profound effect on how we remember entire experiences. So, you know, famously, um, you know, this is fairly well known is that how an experience ends has a disproportionate effect on how people remember the entire experience. And also even, even how we evaluate people's lives too. Yeah. Um, so there's a famous piece of research on, on where they gave somebody a description of a fellow who for 29 years was a wonderful guy, great CEO, generous and whatnot. And then uh, in his 30th year, he became a jerk and then unexpectedly died. And they said, you know, they had people say, how moral of a life did that person lead? And then they had a different set of group people evaluated a different character. This character was a total weasel and jerk for 29 years. In his 30th year, he decided to become a good guy, being more generous. And then he suddenly died. And so what they, what they found was that someone who was a good guy for 29 years and a jerk in his last year was rated as a slightly less moral than someone who was a complete jerk for 29 years and happened to be a good guy in his, in his final year. So, so, so how something ends has a big effect on us on, um, how something ends has a big effect on, on how we remember it. How, uh, uh, the, the presence of ending has a big effect on our motivation. So when we see the end of something, we end up kicking a little bit harder. So if, so a way to, a way to get yourself off the dime in certain kinds of procrastination situation is to impose an ending. Um, so, so, but endings, um, endings matter, endings matter a lot. And I think that one of the things that we need to do in organizations and our family lives and whatnot is, is mark endings and, and establish rituals around endings because that ends up being a deep source of meaning for people. Mm, yeah. Great answer. I love, love that example. That's, that's super powerful. And I think everyone needs to think about that because often it's like we put so much, what you're saying and what I'm learning from this, and you're so right. And I'm only, it's only hitting me now too is we put so much effort into starting something, like so much effort, like whether yeah. it's a business or a relationship or whatever it is, like we're excited and all these enthusiasm. And then when you break up or you end a business or 
you reject someone or someone gets fired or whatever it may be, that process is always handled really poorly. Yeah. And, and, and you're so, that's actually what people remember. Absolutely right. Yeah, and that's scary to think about when, when, you, when you think about that for a moment. But yeah, no, it's absolutely brilliant. And I hope we can continue to talk offline as well. Uh, I'm going to end with what we do, which is two rapid-fire rounds. They're super fast. You've okay. got to fill in the blanks for this one. So these are just okay. fill in the blanks. Are you ready? Yeah. Awesome. Time should always... Be on your mind, but not obsessing your mind. Okay, good answer. Okay, second one. Taking breaks. Taking breaks is one of the most powerful bang-for-the-buck things you can do for your mental, physical, and professional well-being. Uh, number three, every day I must... Uh, every day I must contribute. Okay, I love that. You you excel in your career when? People excel in their careers when they contribute. I love it. Brilliant. Okay, these are your final five. These are answers in one sentence. All right, I'm sweating now. Or one word, yeah. Okay, ready? Got to make it to the end here, yeah. Absolutely. So the one lesson you feel helped you the most throughout your career? Not caring what other people think about me. Great answer. I love that. Uh, what do you want to leave your kids with that you didn't have growing up? Uh, a deep and unshakable work ethic. Nice. Okay. If you could create a law that everyone in the world had to follow, what would it be? <laughs> <laughs> Say please and thank you. Nice. Great. Awesome. Okay. Uh, two more questions left. Fourth question. What is something that you know to be true that many people disagree with you on? So something that you're so sure about that a ton of people be like, nah, Dan, you're totally wrong. The world is less fair than it seems. So you believe the world is less fair than it seems and people yeah. disagree with you on that. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a whole other conversation then. I know, right. I know, okay. I know. Yeah, that one we have I know, to I know. Okay. And when I say people, I might be reflecting my own kind of biases here, but I think especially um, uh, well-educated American people. Sure, great. It's a good answer. I mean, it's an intriguing point. Okay, fifth and final question. What is the biggest lesson you've learned in the last 12 months? It never works to go against the grain of who you are. Mm. Wow, very profound. Wow, those are tough questions, man. Well, you answered them pretty quickly and well, so thank you. Well, I answered them quickly. <laughs> I love it, Dan. This is uh, so brilliant. I really hope we get to meet in person. Yeah, that'd be wonderful. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for doing this, everyone. Uh, Dan's got a ton of great books to, to sell his human drive, a whole new mind. When uh, go and dive into these books, they're, they're absolutely incredible. He's an incredible storyteller. I mean, incredibly accomplished. I can't even start, but I'm just grateful that Dan took this time to be with us today. And I'm grateful, I'm grateful that time. you had me, Jay. It's, it's been a lot of fun. Hey guys, this is Jay again. Just a few more quick things before you leave. I know we try to focus on the good every day and I want to make that easier for you. Would you like to get a short email from me every week that gives you an extra dose of positivity? Weekly Wisdom is my newsletter where I jot down whatever's on my mind that I think may uplift your week. Basically, little bits of goodness that are going to improve your well-being. The short newsletter is all about growth and sending positivity straight to your inbox. Read it with a cup of tea, forward it to a friend, and let these words brighten your day. To sign up, just go to jshetty.me and drop your email in the pop-up. If you have trouble finding it, just scroll to the very bottom of the page and you'll see the sign up. Thank you so much and I hope you enjoy my weekly wisdom newsletter. This podcast was produced by Dust Light Productions. 
Our executive producer from Dustlight is Misha Youssef. Our senior producer is Juliana Bradley. Our associate producer is Jacqueline Castillo. Valentino Rivera is our engineer. Our music is from Blue Dot Sessions. And special thanks to Rachel Garcia, the Dustlight Development and Operations Coordinator. <laughs>